Hello and welcome to another episode of Battleground Ukraine with me, Saul David and Patrick Bishop. Well, there have been two big chunks of news this week. The first, that Ukraine has taken out two Russian warships at the headquarters of the Black Sea Fleet in Sebastopol using British Storm Shadow missiles. And secondly, that Vladimir Putin has met North Korean dictator Kim Jong-un at the Vostoki Cosmo Center in the far east of Russia for their long-predicted pariah state powwow. Putin is apparently seeking badly needed ammunition to shore up defenses in eastern Ukraine. But if he gets it, will they arrive in time? Yes, there have been some very encouraging predictions from US intelligence suggesting that a big Ukrainian breakthrough could come by the end of the year. But having said that, there have also been warnings from the head of the US military, General Mark Milley, that upcoming bad weather could mean that Ukraine has only a 30-day window to achieve its goals. We'll be discussing that before turning to the real news of the week. That is the first sighting of Wagner boss Yevgeny Prigozhin, who apparently is alive and well and living in Venezuela. Well, we did say, didn't we, saw that he was going to replace Lord Lucan in conspiracy theorist fantasies. But uh, seriously, first, this uh, Vostokny summit, what do you make of it, Saul? Well, it was pretty bizarre, wasn't it? The stuff of James Bond movies with two central casting villains getting together at a space center in the middle of nowhere and one arriving by personal bullet and bomb-proof luxury train. Of course, there was no official communique about the meeting or nothing that gave any detail of what they were actually talking about. But the speculation is that the real meat of the matter was some sort of arms and technology trade-off. This would mean North Korea handing over stockpiles of ammunition particularly artillery shells, of which it reportedly has a huge amount. And in return, they'd get high-tech assistance from Russia, ostensibly to aid their space research and satellite programs. It would seem that they're struggling in this department. North Korea fell twice this year to put a spy satellite in space and is having another go next month. Now, more worrying is that some experts believe that what Kim is really after is help with his intercontinental ballistic missile program, which, of course, he would intend to use to deliver nuclear weapons. Hong Min, a North Korea expert at the Korea Institute for National Unification, a government-funded think tank in Seoul, believes that the plan is for Russia to provide technical assistance for North Korea's needs, such as re-entry technology for ICBMs, and further development of hypersonic missiles and submarine-launched ballistic missiles. These are nuclear missiles we're talking about here. So this is not good news for world security generally. And that includes Russia, who have the same concerns as everyone else about nuclear proliferation. So if they are helping the Koreans this week, it would seem to me to be another sign of Putin's desperation. Wouldn't you say so, Patrick? Absolutely. I mean, just look at the optics. Here you have a man who poses as the leader of a global power, shaking hands with someone who in the eyes of the world is kind of half clown, half psychopath, rocket man, as uh, Donald Trump memorably dubbed him, uh, who despite his own ambitions, this is Kim Jong-un, to develop a nuclear arsenal, he can't even feed his own people and he has to rely on China for food. So it's hardly the sort of partnership that you think Putin would have been seeking in the good times. Well, clearly the times are now pretty bad if he's having to stoop this low. I mean, I wonder how on earth can he sell this even to his own brainwashed people as being a positive development? What I suspect is that both sides are actually playing the other. Kim, I think, imagines that given Russia's woes on the battlefield, 
he'll be able to drive a hard bargain and Putin is stringing him along to get the ammo rolling as soon as, and as fast as possible with promises that he doesn't intend to keep. Well, we'll see, but uh, things have to move pretty fast if it's going to have any impact on the battlefield, I would say, wouldn't you? Well, it probably depends who you listen to, doesn't it, Patrick? We've just had Mark Milley, chairman of the US Joint Chiefs of Staff, in other words, America's top soldier, warning this week that there is bad weather on the horizon. He reckoned that Ukraine had only 30 to 45 days worth of fighting weather left. After that, and I quote, the rains will come and it will become very muddy and very difficult to maneuver. And then you get the deep winter. I mean, it's hardly a startling insight from Millie, is it? Uh, and in any case, he's been contradicted by our old friend Kirillo Budanov, the head of Ukrainian military intelligence, who insisted that on the contrary, Ukraine would push on with the counteroffensive come hail, rain or snow. Well, if Millie is right, then uh, General Winter is really on Russia's side here, isn't it? Because this is going to buy them uh, the time that's at the heart of their strategy, which all along, or, you know, since the failure of the initial phase has been hang on in there, wait for Ukraine to wear itself out and for the West to lose interest uh, while you reinforce your existing defences and minefields to make it even harder when the fighting resumes properly in the spring. However, there are lots of ways of reading the battlefield, aren't there? There's another report citing US intelligence sources, which um, calculates that there will be a big Ukrainian breakthrough by the end of the year. Now, this comes from Trent Maul, who is the director of analysis for Washington's Defense Intelligence Agency. And he told The Economist that they have, this is the Ukrainians, a realistic prospect of driving through the third and final trench system and uh, thereby creating that wedge that we've spoken about so much on the podcast. But what's actually been uh, happening on the battlefield generally, Saul? Well, there's been a lot of action in Crimea and also further afield this week, uh, and in particular with the Ukrainians targeting the Russian Black Sea fleet in its base at Sebastopol with 10 cruise missile attacks and three unmanned boats. Now, at least three of these missiles got through, putting out of action and possibly destroying permanently a Kilo-class submarine, the Rostov-on-Don, and a 2,500-tonne landing ship called the Minsk. Moscow has admitted two ships were damaged. The belief is, as I say, they were effectively put out of action. It's very likely that the missiles were British storm shadows, launched from Ukrainian aircraft, which will mean this is the first time they've been used in Crimea. And only this morning comes the news that there's been a successful Ukrainian attack on a gas pipeline in Saratov Oblast, which is a thousand kilometers from eastern Ukraine. So the long reach of the Ukrainians seems to be extending all the time. And reports about that attack suggest a fire has spread over an area of two hectares. Now, if we go back to the Crimea attack, it seems to be part of a wider campaign that includes a recent very effective special forces operation to retake control of gas platforms in the northern Black Sea, which the Russians have been using as a radar base and also as an operational base for helicopters. I mean, this is classic SBS stuff, Patrick, isn't it? I mean, they've been trained to do this exact same thing for the oil platforms in the North Sea. And I wouldn't be surprised if they've been giving the Ukrainians some, you might put it, technical advice. Now, the, plan, the overall plan, it seems, is to wrest back strategic control of the Black Sea, or at least the northern part of it. And part of that will not only protect the Ukrainian coastline, it will also protect ships that will, in the future, of course, carry Ukrainian grain. What are your thoughts, Patrick? Well, now we know why they were concentrating on taking out those air defences, particularly those S-400 
missile systems in the last few weeks. Now, these, of course, are the anti-missile surface-to-air missile batteries, which are there to knock out incoming cruises like the Storm Shadow. There was an attack on the 23rd of August, which uh, successfully destroyed one of these uh, batteries inside Crimea. And it was clearly to open a window, if you like, through which their precious uh, Storm Shadow and Scalp, that's the uh, French equivalent, can operate. They haven't got very many of these, so they have to use them sparingly. But it's pretty impressive stuff, isn't it? It's uh, also another demonstration, I would say, of Russian incompetence. These ships were side by side, the Minsk and the Rostov-on-Don, in dry dock. So if one missile gets through, you get two for the price of one. Uh, as you say, you know, there's the big benefits in all this. It's obviously very clearly thought out. This makes, a crime, well, first of all, it makes Crimea even more unsafe space for the Russian fleet. And it also increases the security of these grain ports, Odessa in particular. So, yeah, I would have thought this was a big positive for the Ukrainians. And again, a sign of their sort of clear thinking, their skill, uh, all in all, you know, pretty impressive. But what about actually on the ground, or what's happening there? Well, it's the same picture that we've had over the last couple of weeks. I mean, on the one hand, you say this is just more slogging away incremental gains, a village here, a village there. But remember, we're now deep into this first strongest uh, Russian defensive belt, if not through it. So, you know, we may be just talking about a kilometre here, a kilometre there, but actually it's making a real difference. Now, the Ukrainians seem to have pushed a little way south of Robotinye, which they captured recently, as we mentioned, and is at the heart as I say, of the toughest part of the Russian defensive line. and there, But there are reports that the Russians are launching regular counterattacks here. They're unlikely to succeed and could be very costly. We seem to have reached a point where manpower is a real consideration for the Russians. According to the Institute for the Study of Warfare, the Washington, D.C.-based think tank, Russian insider sources are claiming there's a row going on inside the Kremlin about the need for an extra round of reserve mode of reserve mobilization on top of the routine one that would happen every autumn. The sources say that some in the inner circle, the so-called Siloviki Hawks, want to add another 175,000 reservists to that for contract service and using coercive methods, if needs be, to get the numbers. However, there's been some pushback from within Putin's office on the grounds that it might spark public unrest. So where is Yevgeny Prigozhin when you need him, Esau? Uh, according to... Uh, <laughs> A Russian blogger, he could be back soon because he didn't, in fact, die on that plane that went down near Moscow and is living on the, quote, paradise island of Margarita in Venezuela. Now, this comes from a so-called political analyst called Valery Solovye. He claims that a deal was hatched involving Putin and uh, the presidential security chief, Nikolai Petrushev, who's the secretary of the uh, Russian Security Council, and according to Valerie, uh, they developed the trick that we observed, he said. When Wagner's key commanders died in the plane crash, Yevgeny Prigozhin remained alive and well. Well, we should mention that Solovy does have a bit of form. He's also claimed that Vladimir Putin is terminally ill and that all current appearances of the Kremlin president are by two doppelgangers controlled by the secret services. But this story is definitely not going to go away, uh, partly because Ukrainian military intelligence seems determined to keep it alive. It said this week that it could confirm the deaths of Wagner military commander Dmitry Ukin, 53, and other mercenary figures in the crash, but wouldn't do the same for Prigozhin. 
A spokesman said, we must operate with confirmed facts. We still need to wait. I mean, it makes you wonder, Patrick, doesn't it, how they know for sure that Utkin's dead. But in any case, all of this is just the oxygen needed to create a whole raft of new sightings. Well, we're going to report those faithfully. Um, but I must say, looking at the, whenever I see an image of Putin, I do wonder about this uh, doppelganger thing because he seemed, his features seem to change quite markedly, don't they, from, a, from appearance to appearance. So who knows, there may be something in that. I mean, he certainly does use, has used body doubles in the past, but whether he's sort of lying in an oxygen tent somewhere while uh, various uh, doubles actually kind of go around meeting Kim Jong-un, etc., cetera, uh, we'll have to wait and see till the events are revealed long after his death, I imagine. Okay, that's enough for the first half. Do join us for part two, where we'll be answering listeners' questions. Welcome back. Well, we've got a question here from Andrew Hedges about the Halo Trust, which we featured last week. Now, Andrew asks, the Halo Trust seems to know where the mines are. How do they know that? Do the Russians know where every mine is located specifically? And paradoxically, if the Russians managed to hold on to the occupied areas, would the minefields actually make further incursions difficult and therefore help Ukraine. Well, Saul, you actually went to visit the Halo Trust. I wasn't available that day. So this sounds like one for you. Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting uh, question. And of course, the answer is the Halo Trust doesn't know where every mine is located. And it's a slow, painstaking business to find them and dig them out. And it's incredibly dangerous. And this has really been brought home in a very sobering way this week uh, with the announcement by Halo that one of their mine clearers was actually killed. There was a an accident in which three staff were injured and one of whom has subsequently died of his injuries. So it's testament, as Halo says, to the seriousness of the threat and the highly lethal nature of Russian mines. Okay, we've got a question here from Mike Burrows, uh, and he asked, the holdups on F-16s apparently relates to training pilots. Why are we not seeing Western pilots volunteering to fill the gap? What do you think, Patrick? Well, I do know a little bit about this. Our sources are telling us that uh, this is something that's obviously occurred to the Ukrainian Air Force, you know, the idea of reaching out to European and US pilots who are combat trained on the F-16. But as you can imagine, it's a hugely sensitive subject. So although it may be under consideration by the Ukrainian Air Force, I don't think we're going to hear anything about it, even if it actually takes place. There is, of course, precedent for all this historically, which goes back to the earliest days of military aviation. I'm thinking of the Lafayette Squadron, which was made up of American volunteer pilots who flew uh, for the French Air Force in the First World War, starting, uh, I think, at the Battle of Verdun. So they're all the way back to 1916, when America wasn't yet in the war. But even then, uh, this produced diplomatic problems, and Germany complained that this was an infringement of US neutrality. But I think the answer is, I, you know, I'm sure something is going on, but I don't think we're going to see any F-16 top gun types being wheeled out in Kiev for a press conference anytime soon. No, and it makes you wonder whether they really need to be top guns because there's an extraordinary story that's broken uh, on the BBC this morning, Patrick, about an incident that we'd heard about last year. It took place last September, and it was when an RAF RC-135 rivet joint surveillance aircraft, which has a crew of 20, 
was almost shot down by a Russian jet in what the Russians and both the British at the time explained was a malfunction. Well, now it appears, uh, according to three Western sources, that the Russian jet involved actually deliberately tried to shoot down the surveillance aircraft because it mistakenly thought it had got the permission to do so from its controller, and that it actually launched a weapon. It launched a, a missile against the rivet joint. Now, quite how you miss a rivet joint at a relatively short range is, you know, a, an extraordinary thought, but it just goes to show that, you know, how effective these Russian fighter jets are. Having said that, of course, Patrick, the consequences of this could have been very serious, couldn't they? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this this could very well have, you know, technically triggered a, uh, a NATO response. This is an attack on a would have been an attack on a NATO country. So, thank God they missed. I suppose is one way of looking at it. Uh, got a, one here from Gunter in Belgium, and I'm sure you'll have a view on this, Saul, because. Uh, Gunter says, as a Belgian, I know the impact MUD had on the Waterloo battlefield, where MUD largely neutralised the artillery of the Grande Armée of Napoleon. I'm wondering what the effect of the MUD and later on the freezing cold will have on the mines that the Russians have put in place in their defensive lines in Ukraine. Well, I just want to say here, rain certainly does move landmines as a technical term for it. It's called mine migration, which means that a minefield has been shifted significantly as, as a result of rain and mud carrying it away from its original location. I don't think it actually interferes with the efficiency of the mines because most of them these days are made of plastic, which are makes them uh, effectively waterproof. But I want to hear about what you think about this all. But on the artillery shell front, from my own experience, I, I know that when I was in the Falklands, for example, I mean, a lot of incoming Argentinian shells failed to explode on landing because they were hitting soggy, boggy, ground and a lot of them didn't go off. Now, I think this must have been pretty old kit. You know, they, this was where the these shells had the fuse in the nose. So it's essentially a sort of percussion thing. The, the fuse detonates uh, and then it sets off the actual charge inside the shell, which sends the shrapnel sort of bursting out. But what do you think? I mean, what sort of shells do you think the Russians are flying? Have, have they firing up? Have they moved on from from that, or would they actually be susceptible to malfunction if they, if they were landing in soggy ground? No, I mean, uh, even even modern shells today, uh, Patrick, are affected by muddy ground. And, and just going back to Waterloo for a second, because it is an interesting story, and it did play an absolutely crucial role in the success or otherwise of that battle. And uh, what effectively happened is there'd been a lot of rain the night before, and Napoleon's plan to launch his attack relatively early with a huge artillery bombardment. And remember, the French were really the best artillerists in the world at the time. They grouped together this huge battery, the Grand Battery, uh, which was going to use mainly round shot, but also exploding shell to tear great chunks of holes inside Wellington's defensive line. And the, the reason he wasn't able to launch that attack so early was because the ground was very soft and it would have taken away the impact, particularly of the round shot. Those are the hard uh, balls, which then bounce along the ground and can take out sometimes up to eight or nine soldiers if they're closely packed in a single strike. But of course, when the ground is soft, it just absorbs it. And the same thing happens uh, today, Patrick. It's interesting, you know, I, and the other point to bear in mind is that how effective are uh, Russian artillery shells 
at exploding anywhere. Yes, of course, they cause havoc to the Ukrainians. But when they get their stuff from North Korea, you might find a lot more. If they do, you may find a lot more malfunctioning. Yeah. Okay. Well, that was fascinating. This all. <laughs> Going to just read this one out uh, from Mark Moran. I used to know a Mark Moran. I wonder if it's the same one. Uh, if it is, uh, very good to hear from you, Mark, after all these years. Uh, Mark says, hi, once again, an informative podcast. Now, this is again about the weather. Everyone's fascinated by the weather this week. Now, he, Mark, has something to add. He says, as for the fighting season, he says, my Irish uncle, who used to run gangs of bricklayers, often opined of the weather, that you were just fine working up to Christmas. It was from Boxing Day till the Gold Cup, i.e. the Cheltenham Gold Cup in March, that you affect, he says. Keep up the good work. And he says, please feel free to pass this knowledge onto the Ukrainian high command. Great stuff. Well, we've got another fascinating message, a bit of inside information from a former British general who doesn't want to be identified, but he's responding to the recent, as he puts it, unfair criticism of the Ukrainians in the last few months, suggesting they should have punched harder with their armor to achieve a clean breakthrough. Now, he goes on to say, after an initial mistaken attempt to leave with armor, the Ukrainians are rightly leading with infantry and are achieving incremental but important gains, as we've been saying. They do, however, have three important problems. First, these infantry attacks are being organized at company level. Second, they don't have enough counter-battery capability to achieve a fully suppressive effect. Thirdly, there's a significant imbalance of air power. The 21st Army Group in the Second World War, for example, uh, would never have succeeded in any of its late war battles without those three ingredients. However, and here's the important point, Patrick, it would be wrong, says the general, to paint an unduly gloomy picture for the reasons stated by Watling and Reynolds. Those are two RUSI, Rusi analysts who've recently done a report on this. The Russian hold of the second and third lines may be tenuous. The Russians have no theater reserves and may not even have significant tactical reserves. Russian ammunition reserves are low, gun barrels are wearing out, and their accuracy is diminishing. Russian morale may be brittle. But most important of all, and this is making a point that we've made before, the Ukrainians don't need to achieve a breakthrough as far as Melitopol. All they actually need to do is get within range of the main supply route and through fire control achieve artillery domination of the M14 road and thereby make Russian logistics into Crimea and the east bank of the Dnipro untenable. He finishes it off by saying, there are two ways this could happen for the Ukrainians. The first is to continue an attritional and expensive battle until they are within conventional range. And the second, and we'll wait and see what happens on this, would be for the US to change its unfathomable policy on ATAC-Ms and give Ukraine a long-range attack capability. Yeah, it is very strange, though, isn't it? Well, I think that was a very sound analysis, not just because it chimes with a lot of what you've been saying, Saul, and uh, which I sort of pretty much go along with. So, uh, yeah, it's um, more, more grounds for optimism. Just going to um, raise one here from Clark Campbell, who's talking about what we were reporting earlier, the attack on the uh, naval base at Sebastopol. Sebastopol. What do we say, Saul? Sebastopol or Sebastopol? Well, I've written about this, Patrick, as you know, and they use both at the time. Sebastopol was effectively the term the Brits used to use, and Sebastopol, well, actually, am I getting that wrong way around? I think, so the Russians say Sebastopol, don't they? Uh, and when the British or English speaking are talking about it, they effectively usually say Sebastopol, but probably Sebastopol is right. Okay, well, let's say uh, we're British, so let's stick with Sebastopol until we uh, anything changes. <laughs> Going back to the 19th century. <laughs> Now, Clark Campbell is saying, uh, well, he references that, but he, 
he then um, hits on a very interesting aspect of, of this whole story. He reports that uh, there are lots of reports that Starlink, which he says has wittily been renamed Sarlink um, by someone in Ukraine, <laughs> went offline worldwide just before this attack. So he, he's asking, essentially, what do we think about the... Well, he's, he's not doing this, but we're going to talk about it anyway. What do we think about the musk sort of uh, conduct in all this um, now this has all been kind of reverberating over the last couple of days because of a story which emerged in a recent biography of musk which said that he refused an emergency request by the ukrainian government to activate starlink all the way to sebastopol so it could be used to guide a marine drone attack on the black sea fleet based out this is back in september last year so september 2022 now, Musk confirmed the story. He said, yes, this is true. And he said the reason he refused was because it would make him complicit personally in a major act of war and conflict escalation. And he, you know, he, he believes this is to the point of actually triggering a nuclear strike. It's a tricky one, isn't it? Because, you know, Musk has, has been a friend of Ukraine in, in a significant way. He gave free Starlink services to Ukraine following the invasion of course you know the ukrainians have waded in on the on the subject and the the government's come out to say that uh, you know by def essentially defending the russians from the attack he was therefore more or less sort of facilitating russian attacks with caliber missiles on ukrainian cities because the ships that were going to be attacked were being used to launch these calibers this is indeed the case that a lot of the cruise missiles being fired into Ukraine are being fired from vessels in the Black Sea. So it's kind of give with one hand, take with the other, isn't it? I mean, uh, what, what do you make of it? It's an utterly ridiculous position for Musk to have taken. Either he believes that Ukraine needs support in defending its, its, its own country, or he doesn't. Of course, he's. it's interesting, the Ukrainian position on all of this, because they have, while they've been very disappointed with his actions that day, have also thanked him for the use of Stalin, which played an absolutely crucial role, as we know, at the beginning of the conflict in, you know, pushing back the initial Russian advances. But the idea that the Ukrainians are somehow overstepping the mark by attacking Russian vessels, which are being used to fire ballistic missiles into Ukraine, is utterly nonsensical. And this miscalculation that any attack on anywhere outside actual Ukrainian soil, or at least Ukrainian soil as it was at the point of the reinvasion, the second invasion in February last year, is just utterly ridiculous. Uh, and even the Americans, as you can see, Patrick, have finally come to terms with the fact that it is completely acceptable for the Ukrainians to make these attacks further field. They don't want their own kit to be used. And I suppose Musk would say the same thing, but it is nonsensical. And it will soon, as we can see with the use of storm shadow missiles into Ukraine, it will soon be almost inevitable when the Ukrainians get ATAC-Ms that they are going to be using them outside Ukraine and certainly into Crimea. So it's a ridiculous nonsensical position. And there have been some people in America actually accusing Musk. I think this is going a little bit too far, but nevertheless, it's caused a lot of bad feeling accusing him of treason. Okay, we get lots of interesting anecdotes from our listeners. Thank you very much indeed. They often sort of give us a little glimpse of uh, stuff you don't read in the uh, media and, you know, a little idea of what's going on behind the headlines. So Hugh is telling us about something that he just picked up, a little line about a Russian passenger plane crash uh, in a field near Novosibirsk in uh, 
Siberia. So out of curiosity, he got onto uh, a site uh, called, I think, Flight Radar 24 and got the full details on it. Now, it turned out that uh, this plane was a, an aircraft that had been leased to Russian airlines by a Western company and effectively stolen uh, through a change in Russian law, allowing them to be re-registered in Russia. Now, this is obviously blatantly illegal under international law, but altogether they appear to have stolen about 500 aircraft in this way. Now, he asks you, without proper maintenance and parts, which Russia can't get under sanctions, I was wondering, would it only be a matter of time before these things start falling out of the sky? And could this, this crash that he noticed, be the start of it? Well, you know, what, what does um, this tell us about Russia? That this is, again, you know, a sign of a sort of bandit state, isn't it, Saul, where you start nicking you know, aircraft uh, to supplement your own fleet in the full knowledge that you won't actually be able to keep them flying for very long. Yeah, we've been criticizing Western companies for taking their time to withdraw from Russia, uh, withdraw their business. Uh, we mentioned Heineken, I think, last week or the week before. But reality is that although it's difficult to get out when you've got assets there, they are going to think long and hard before they go back. So the consequences of this conflict are going to be felt by the Russian economy and the Russian people for a long time to come. I don't think there's any doubt about that, because just as the air industry is going to be very wary of doing business with Russia, so are many other sectors too. Okay, that's all we have time for this week. But do join us next Wednesday for another big interview and also Friday when we'll be answering listeners' questions and analysing the latest news. Goodbye. Goodbye.